This is Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien as she examines America's most infamous true crime cases through the lens of the court, not the court of public opinion. No spin, no theories, no rumors, just facts. Here's Lisa O'Brien. In episode five, I am joined by co-host, guest co-host Kyle, to talk about the 1983 KFC murders. September 23rd, 1983 was a typical Friday night in Kilgore, Texas, with families attending football games and ordering takeout for dinner. At the Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant, something went horribly wrong around closing time. The following morning on Saturday, the bodies of KFC employees Mary Tyler, Opie Hughes, and Joey Johnson, along with David Maxwell and Monty Landers, were found off an oil lease road about 14 miles from the restaurant. All five had been shot to death with at least two different guns. Initially, the only leads came from rumors and town gossip. The case went cold until DNA testing identified blood found on evidence inside the restaurant belonging to Tyler, Texas cousins, Darnell Hartsfield and Romeo Pinkerton. We'll talk about the lengthy and fruitless investigation that was hampered by technology that was primitive by today's standards and the lack of solid leads or links to suspects. Finally, we'll talk about the ultimate convictions of Pinkerton, who pled guilty during his capital murder trial, and Hartsfield, who was convicted by a jury at trial and thank you for joining me today Kyle how are you I'm doing great uh, good afternoon this is a, a fascinating case that I've uh, I've thought about for many many years so glad to uh, talk about a case that's uh, close to my heart and close to my home yeah and you know how old were you when this happened in 1983 yeah so i guess i was thinking it seemed i was about nine years old then at the time and so you could imagine this had a huge impact on the area you know east texas is not a a huge area there are several cities um you know the two biggest one being my hometown and the other one tyler that are about you know seventy thousand people each but it really cast a long shadow on the whole area of east texas which has certainly had its share of issues but definitely something like this was not the norm yeah and you're in northeast texas near the louisiana border in fact yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Kilgore is probably 50 miles from the Louisiana border. Mm-hmm. I think when I was going, I went to DeVry and Irving after high school. And I think we stopped in Tyler on our way through. Yeah, that's prob- that would make sense. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, they're on Interstate 20. Yeah. And then report and then go south. Yeah. Well, this was this would have been 1982. (laughs) So I don't know what interstate systems. I think we went up to Shreveport 
and then over and then came back south. Yeah, it makes sense. Before to Texarkana. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, the, researching this case, uh, Joey, David, and Monty were all contemporaries of mine because um, Joey and David were about a year older, but Monty was only a few months older than I am. Yeah, well, and it's funny just through through the world of the internet, I have bumped into David's son, David Maxwell Jr., who was not born at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I have bumped into him, you know, unintentionally through several, uh, you know, sports boards as well as people that know him. So I know it's definitely had a big, big impact on his life. Oh, of course, of course. Um, so before we start talking about the, the, the case itself, um, as a Texas resident and a lifelong Texan, um, can you enlighten people not from Texas about Friday nights in Texas and how they probably differ greatly from Friday <laughs> nights everywhere, everywhere else, else in the country? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the stereotype is very much based on fact. I mean, in most, you know, big and small cities across Texas, you know, Friday nights in the fall are reserved for football. Um, I can tell you personally, my parents have had, um, I am not from Kilgore, but I'm from the area and my parents have had season tickets to the local high school football team um, since probably 1965. Um, and so, you know, they don't go all the time, but, you know, it is definitely a big deal. And so you can drive through any small town in Texas on Friday night in the fall and not see much going on because virtually everybody, either we know whether or not you have kids playing or not, you know, everybody is at the high school football stadium watching a football game. And that was no different in Kilgore, and um, certainly in the 80s. And you're either at your home stadium or you're at a yeah. stadium in another town. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. People will travel. You know, we, uh, you have a, you know, you might have a game that's an hour away that will still have, you know, 5,000 visiting fans um, driving all that way to watch the game. Mm -hmm. And um, also something that was mentioned on the, the cold case files episode. Uh, I think it's Friday night ghost is the title. It's an excellent episode if you can uh a and e's cold case files if you can find it on your local cable provider internet uh prime a and e's streaming service at by all means please it's a it's a great episode and it uh, really gives you a lot of insight into the case not only the investigation, but the impact the case had on the families of the victims, uh, specifically Mary Tyler's two stepdaughters, Lisa and Denise. Um, yeah, also, Leanne Raspberry, a co-worker. It was. It very much was. And so in um, Friday nights, you're going to football games, you're not cooking, you're ordering takeout and the kfc restaurant apparently that day had been very busy i uh, had done a lot of business and that night 
what we know is that Joey Johnson was working as a cook. Opie Hughes was working. Mary Tyler's daughter, Kim, was working. And a young lady by the name of Ashley was also working. Um, apparently, one of the women, and I don't think they're really sure which one. Some have identified Kim. Some have just said a woman. Um, on a phone call, either with home office or Mary Tyler, informed someone that the deposit had not been made that day and there was $2,000 in the restaurant. And during that phone call, a young lady by the name of Star was in line and she heard the statement and she noticed that the young African-American men behind her probably also heard the statement or believed them to have heard the statement. Right. Um, and that night around closing time, David Maxwell and Monty Landers came to the restaurant to help Joey clean up because they were all headed to a party that evening. Yeah, they were fraternity they were, brothers. Yeah, they were all fraternity brothers at Kilgore College, which is the local junior college. And uh, prior to closing time, Ashley and Kim were let go. I remember working in a movie theater. Um, the prime evening thing was when the last movie starts, some people get to leave and some people have to wait and close. <laughs> and you don't want to close. <laughs> because you can't leave until the last person leaves the movie theater. Exactly. And even though it wasn't Marvel movies, people would stay and watch all of the credits. <laughs> so, and so again, the victims in this case were Mary Tyler, who was a manager, Opie Hughes, Joey Johnson, David Maxwell, and Monty Landers. Um, we're not really sure exactly what happened. Uh, witnesses did report seeing a white van at the KFC restaurant uh, parked toward the back of the restaurant, even though there were no parking spaces back there. Uh, and it's believed that when the closing process began, that's when at least two people and possibly a third gained entry into the restaurant. There were also, there was evidence of a struggle. There was blood from Mary Tyler. There was blood from uh, people who didn't work at the restaurant left behind. But in 1983, that blood couldn't really tell investigators that much. Um, and uh, there were signs of a struggle. Things were in disarray. Uh, things had been rifled through. So the police knew that a robbery had happened, but they didn't know where the employees were. And then the following morning, the employees were found shot to death on a, an oil lease off an oil lease road. And it looked as though they had been put face down on the ground, perhaps told that they were going to be left there while the robbers got away. And then they were all shot in the head and some in the, in the torso 
Opie Hughes was found about 50 yards away. And initially they believed she had tried to run whenever the shooting started. Uh, three days later, Darnell Hartsfield and I believe Romeo Pinkerton were linked to a robbery of a Tyler, Texas yeah. grocery store. And that crime bore some similarities. It was near closing time. Guns were used. They rifled through under the cash registers. Uh, they also demanded the bank bags from the employees. And it's my understanding they were actually both arrested and, and at least charged, if not ultimately sent to prison. Yeah, that's right. They were, they definitely had a history of these types, similar types of crimes. Yeah. So, um, and I think, yeah, uh, Hartsfield was charged with the aggravated robbery with a firearm, uh, but then he committed a burglary of a habitation in November, so he wasn't in jail too long. Uh, and Pinkerton was never charged with the aggravated robbery, so Hartsfield may have had other co-conspirators or accomplices that he worked with now yeah which would be an interesting question back when we sort of get to the end of this um this trial we think about you know potential suspect number three yeah um so the investigation was hampered i think for the most part by rumors even though joey david monty mary and opie none of them had a reputation of being involved in drugs the, the rumor that started going around town was that there was this meth recipe hidden in the restaurant, yeah. that drugs were being sold out the drive through window, um, and all of that led police to start looking at local drug people. And one of those people was a, a man by the name of James Earl Mankin Jr. His father was a state representative, a businessman, uh, probably an impeccable reputation in Kilgore, the son, not so much. Yeah. It was the classic example of, you know, the second generation, you know, messes up, you know, the, the wealthy, well thought of father who's, you know, son is a ne'er-do-well, you know, we've, we've seen that repeated, you know, thousands of times across history. Yeah. And, um, so they started looking at Mankin, and one of the things during Joey Johnson's autopsy, a torn fingernail fell out of his pants when they undid his belt, or they found it in a pocket, or I've read different sources for different you know locations for where they found it. And none of the men or women had torn fingernails. So they presumed the torn fingernail came from one of the assailants. And at the time, I think they believed that if you microscopically examined the fingernail, you would find striations that would be perfectly match unique to that person, similar to a fingerprint. Yep, and absolutely. So apparently they collected a fingernail from Mankin because they, when they questioned him, they did observe a torn fingernail 
on one of his hands. And at some, some forensic person examined him microscopically and said, yep, they match. Or they're probably consistent with each other, more likely than not. Um, and so that led suspicion of Macon, but it wasn't until 1995 that they were able to try to charge him. Because I guess they collected other evidence over the course of, of the 12 years. Um, now, one of the saddest parts, I think, is that initially Hartsfield and Pinkerton were also considered suspects, along with two guys by the name of Muse. Yeah, that's what that's what's crazy is that absolutely they were definitely on the initial initial suspect list. I think one of the officers actually talked to it. I think it was Pinkerton, right, that said I was in prison at the time. That was his alibi that he had he was in prison on another robbery charge and he claimed that he did not get out for a few days after uh, September 23rd, which obviously later on officials will figure out was incorrect but at that, the time they either did not or were not able to check that or validate correct that. uh or there was an error in the records that gave that that corroborated what he told them yeah even though the actual think, release date was yeah. a couple days before right i think it was that was it the same witness that overheard you know saw the gentleman in line when the um when the lady was making that comment about the safe identified um them as you know being at the restaurant right before closing correct um and i think she only ever identified hartsfield i don't think she was ever able to identify pinkerton um and it's possible that the third person which we'll learn about later spoiler alert um was the one inside of pinkerton was outside but she did identify hartsfield um so the case goes cold because they do um, continue investigating, but they don't have anything pointing to anybody. And apparently Hartsfield took a polygraph and passed. So he was knocked off the suspect list. Um, the muses were also apparently dropped from the list either because Pinkerton and Hartsfield were dropped and they were accomplices or known associates or because they gave a similar story about being incarcerated at the time of the robbery. Uh, again, 1995, they were able to take the case to a grand jury and they, the grand jury did indict Mankins. Interestingly enough, Mankin was never looked at with accomplices. Right. Um, so they believe that he would have been able to get all five victims quietly into a vehicle, quietly to the oil field, oil lease road, and then to execute them without any assistance from anyone, um, which kind of doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but yeah, it has. I think we've talked about it. it's never 
it's never made sense on a lot of these cases where you have multiple victims that they believe, you know, one or two people is going to be able to corral a bunch of right. people. Always going to take at least a couple of people. And in this, somebody's going to make a run for it. And then when you know you, the the perp chases that one person, then somebody else is going to make a run. Yeah, the the other four are going to be gone. Exactly. Um, and that was another thing too, because there were signs of a struggle in the restaurant and. I mean, Joey Johnson was a big guy and he was a very athletic guy. And David Maxwell was also a very big guy. And so I can't imagine a guy. Jimmy Mankins was not a big guy. Right. Uh, Jimmy Mankins was compared to Joey Johnson and David Maxwell, at least was an Oompa Yeah. And it's what we would, you know, kind of say, I mean, I think he's kind of the classic stereotype of your burnout, you know? Yeah. You know, not not very healthy, not a so probably I, not going to you know not gonna um, you know get control of a couple of strong college kids. Yeah, so I I don't find it to be plausible that he alone could have controlled everyone. Uh, but again, they never looked at or named any potential accomplice for him. Uh, he was eventually cleared based on DNA, because they examined the fingernail and actually said it's not his. And an analyst was able to definitively say that. So the charges were dropped. And in 2003, jumping forward a little in history, um, his name has actually been expunged from the indictments and, and those things. Um, so they are very certain that he had nothing to do with the crime and it was in 2000 around 2000 that a friend of david maxwell's by the name of james stroud was elected as the rust county sheriff and he brought in a former fbi agent named george keeney to look at the cold case, take another look, fresh look, and try to solve it. And of course, DNA testing was, uh, had been developed. It went from theory in 1983 to reality in late 90s and, and into 2000. And every year, advancements are being made. So they go back and Mr. Keeney went through and tracked down evidence from labs in from Austin to Dallas. And then they started DNA testing what they could test. And as it turns out, initially they did identify Darnell Hartsfield through CODIS because Darnell was serving a life sentence by that time. And um, another thing that kind of struck me when I was reading during the investigation, there was a lot of squabbling between Greg and Russ counties because Kilgore is kind of located, I guess it straddles two different counties. Yeah, that's right. And if I recall, I think is the murder, or well, sorry, the, the KFC restaurant is in Greg County. But where the bodies were found was in was Russ, Russ County. So, yeah, that was one of the problems early on was just the 
the squabbling between the different police departments and the sheriff's departments, you know, nobody really wanted to share information. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons the investigation was, you know, really not handled very well. I don't think anybody would argue that the that the law enforcement, local office folks did a great job. Correct. Uh, well, I think and, and but it was 1983 mindset and 19, 1983 methodology. And so, yeah, Greg County felt the crime started in their county. They had jurisdiction. And Rusk County felt the murders were committed in their jurisdiction. So they had jurisdiction. And that's not uncommon. And and serial killers, back to Ted Bundy in the 70s. Right. That benefited them. And I don't think we had learned yet how much interagency cooperation gets the job done exactly more efficiently and and more accurately um but one good thing potentially is that that is the reason that hartsfield and pinkerton were looked at in 1983 they just weren't looked at hard enough And again, I think the technology of the day was not advanced enough to be able to solve this case. Yeah, that's right. Um, They were from Tyler. This was in Kilgore. Nobody knew them. Exactly. Well, that's. I mean, that's what's strange, too, is because Tyler is in another county. It's not very far, but it's in another county. So, yeah, they may not have had that, you know, they may not have had the same, you know, databases that we have today, mm-hmm. where they could have been immediately, able, just like the mess up with, I think it was Pinkerton's release from Texas Department of Corrections. You know, I think they mentioned that on the show that it might've taken, you know, a, several days to verify that. And so Correct. we didn't have this instant log on to the internet and get all the information that, you know, at the palm of your hand. Correct. And Tyler is in Smith County. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was, um, again, but that was 1983. And I think it was when departments were just starting to learn that when, when they cooperate, um, things go much more smoothly. Right. Um, and I have a family friend whose daughter was, was murdered in, the late 80s maybe it was the early 90s and that was a, a problem with her investigation because her vehicle was found in orleans parish but her body was found in saint james and so nopd and saint james squabbled over who who was in charge and so you lose leads and you lose, you lose, sometimes lose ev- evidence. As exactly. Well. So. And I doubt, I doubt that the killers were that sophisticated. It was probably just dumb luck that they happened to cross county lines going out into the country to dump the bodies. Correct. I, yeah. I don't think that was um, listening to these two talk. No. And that's why they've been caught so many times. Right. <laughs> they're, they're not sophisticated criminals and, you know, I think this one was just, I think this crime escalated because 
I think they got a lot of resistance from the victims across the board. Right. And that's always kind of been one of the local theories is that probably Joey Johnson in particular, and probably David Maxwell as well, put up a fight, which they weren't expecting. And that might have been why this escalated from a, you know, quote unquote, simple robbery to a five person homicide. And, and it's my, my guess is too, none of the victims ever dreamed they would be murdered. They probably mm-hmm. thought, okay, we're going to, they're going to take us out to the country or they're going to take us somewhere where we can't call the police immediately with enough time for them to get away. And it's, it's interesting as a side, you know, it's one of the things that that's dawned on me as I've listened to these kind of true crime stories. And I've told, I've told both my kids and my, my wife, if anybody ever points a gun at you and tells you to come with them, you're better off taking your chances, make them shoot you right there. Because if you ever go with them, you're done. So if somebody right. ever pulls a gun on you, tells you to get in the car, just run because make yeah. them shoot you in public. Because once you get in the vehicle or you get in some, and you get with the killer and they take you somewhere, you're done. Just take yeah. your chances in public. Just run. Do not mm-hmm. ever get in the car with someone. Or make pointing a if- gun at you run and make as much noise as you can and draw exactly. as much attention to yourself as you can. hundred percent agree with that, uh, that uh, strategy, because it is probably more likely to be successful than to go with the person and trust them not right. to, not to kill you or, or do horrible things before killing you. But yeah, there, there had to have been a struggle and there had been a struggle that hurt Hartsfield and Pinkerton because their blood was found inside the restaurant. Hartsfield's blood was found on a box under the cash register used to keep uh, register tape. And uh, Pinkerton's blood was found on a napkin in the restaurant on the floor. And so there, uh, because they were incarcerated in Texas Department of Criminal Justice after like 1996, they had to give DNA samples. And that DNA was put into uh, both probably Texas database and CODIS database. And that was what happened was they, in 2000, they start testing DNA and they end up with DNA from Hartsfield and Pinkerton inside the restaurant that places both of them in the restaurant at the time the struggle ensued right and and again there's no i'm just this is just kyle's theory but i've always thought that they my guess is they must have taken probably one of the ladies quote unquote hostage grabbed her and said okay if you if the rest of you don't do what we say we're going to hurt her that must have been how they got all five of them into the vehicle because it yeah. all seems strange to me. And I've always speculated they probably said, okay, if you guys, you know, if you know, Joey, Dave, if you don't do what we say, we're going to shoot one of the, you know, either Mary or um, Opie probably um, and basically said, okay, do what we say, or, you know, we're going to kill her right here on, at the restaurant. I, I agree. And I, but I, and I think probably again, speculating, I think that they probably got control of Opie and Mary. Right. And these were older ladies and these were good Texas boys. 
who were made to think you're going to kill them if you keep resisting. Exactly. And I, I totally agree. And there was a white van observed and Hartsfield had been linked to a white van. So um, the once the DNA was uncovered, they convened a grand jury to start hearing evidence in the KFC murder case. Um, Hartsfield appeared under subpoena and testified and in his testimony denied ever setting foot in the Kilgore KFC. A fact which was refuted uh, by the irrefutable DNA evidence found on a box inside the restaurant under the cash register on the night that five people disappeared and the night before they were found murdered. So that resulted in the grand jury charging him with aggravated perjury. And he went to trial and was convicted of aggravated perjury. Now, I would have expected at that point for him to give up the pretense and start singing like a canary. But no, he wanted to roll the dice with a jury at a five count capital murder trial. Right. Uh, the AG's office was able to get indictments against Hartsfield and Pinkerton in, I think it was 2005. Um, I covered up my notes, but it was in 2005 in November. And so they were going to go to trial. Pinkerton went on trial first. Um, it's kind of odd. His jury selection started in August, but his trial didn't really start until October. So there must have been a jury selection and then some time off and then the trial started, uh, perhaps because it was capital murder. And at that point, I believe the death penalty was probably still on the table. Um, they had not only his DNA evidence, but apparently he had confessed to having murdered five people with his cousin while incarcerated or in jail awaiting trial. And so on at the end of October 2007, he decided he was going to plead guilty. And he entered a guilty plea. It doesn't appear that he ever testified against Hartsfield. Right. And as part of his plea, um, he was not asked to identify any co-conspirators or, or accomplices. Now, we do know that DNA from semen and examining clothing from the victims was found in the crotch of Opie Hughes's pants. Um, but the DNA did not match Hartsfield or Pinkerton. It didn't match her husband. I don't believe it matched any of the male victims. And the only thing they know or that they could tell was that it more likely than not came from an African and person of African-American descent. Um, but 
neither Pinkerton or Hartsfield have, have ever named a third conspirator. Now, during their DNA testing, they were collecting DNA from everybody that they could. And it didn't match anyone that they collected DNA from during that part of the investigation. Whether they collected DNA from the muses, I don't know. Because the, the court records don't really detail that much. Um, and uh, Lisa Tanner has apparently a funny story that I read in one of the newspaper accounts of a suspect who was asked for DNA, who flat out refused to provide DNA. He then went home and he wrote a letter to Lisa Tanner lining up all his reasons why he wasn't going to provide them with DNA. And he mailed it to her after licking the envelope. <laughs> so she ended up, even though he didn't want her to have it, she ended up with his DNA. So, um, but to this day, the third person is unidentified. I'm wondering though, I would expect any person who served as an accomplice of Pinkerton and Hartsfield to have been in CODIS. Yeah, that's, I mean, that was a huge kind of bombshell for this case that has been, had so many crazy twists and turns for, you know, 20 plus years. That was the latest. And yeah, that's what's so strange is, you know, somebody who would participate in a rape, a robbery and a murder and never be in trouble again, never have his DNA taken again, which is extremely strange. Correct. And one of the other thing, like surely he would have been in the system. Yeah. And one of the other things that kind of ma makes me kind of wonder whether a rape occurred is that when Opie Hughes was autopsied, that should have been looked for and there would have been i would expect some evidence of it right um her clothes did, were not disarray in disarray she wasn't unclothed um you and i were talking one day and it could be somebody freaky came across a body and did their thing and moved on um it could also, the other thing I thought of could be inadvertent contamination in 1983. For example, her clothing was stored with evidence from another case that had sexual assault evidence. Right. Um, it could, and it could be the perpetrator died in 1983 before, or 1984, shortly after, before any DNA sample could have been taken. Uh, and unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, we're never going to know unless there's a reference sample to compare that DNA to. Yeah, that's that's always been my, you know barstool theory is that maybe whoever did it passed away he was yeah. you know he's been dead for a long time and that's what kept him out of the system at least you know post 1983 which it definitely makes sense 
you can see how three people, it would make more sense than if you had three people, meaning one to drive, two mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, keep people under control in the van, easier to corral five people. You know, the third person seems to make make the crime seem more reasonable if you think about, okay, you know, even for two people to control five people is quite a lot, even if you sort of assume that they must have taken one of the women, you know, quote unquote hostage to keep the, uh, you know, the three men, you know, under control. But a third, a third person definitely, you start to see, okay, now it really is clear how they were able to get these people, you know, into the van, out into the country, control them, you know, and the fact that, again, I think you mentioned this, that, you know, her body, Opie Hughes's body was found you know, what was it, maybe 30, 40 yards? 50. The other 50. So 50 yards, yeah. Everybody thought, oh, well, she had run. And that's correct. The, the popular thought was all these years was, oh, she had run. But then maybe now, you know, with, uh, with the semen, it's like, okay, well, unfortunately, she didn't run. She might have been taken over there for a specific reason. Right. And again, that's a possibility. Um, but I hope that that is the result of contamination. Right. And that, you know, that she really did try to run when they started shooting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, because they don't mention her clothing being in disarray. Right. They don't. It does seem very strange that, you know, yeah. she be redressed, especially being kind of left out in the middle of the country. Right. So, but, uh, and, and, and again, that could have all been facts that they kept close to the vest. So that if they got any confessions, they'd be able to know whether they were true or not. The other troubling thing for me though, too, is that Hartsfield and Pinkerton have never named right. a third person. Uh, even when Pinkerton was, con- was pleading guilty, he didn't name a third person. Um, and I, I don't understand why they wouldn't have made an effort to get him to testify against Hartsfield. Right. It is strange, they, especially knowing that, that they didn't push harder to say, OK, if you want this deal, if you're going to plead, you have to tell us everything. You have to tell us the complete story, not just, you know, you have to name this third person. Yeah. So um, because Pinkerton pled, he had no appeals. Uh, and he's had no state writs or federal habeas hardsfield um he unsuccessfully appealed his perjury conviction arguing that lisa tanner was not uh duly authorized to prosecute him which was found first of all to be uh not preserved for appellate review because he didn't complain about it at trial but they also the appellate court alternatively looked at the facts and circumstances in the record and found that she was working she was initially brought on by one da when the new da took over she continued at his will and pleasure and he actually second chaired both the perjury trial and the capital murder trial so that shows that she was duly authorized by the attorney the county attorney to prosecute uh hartsfield's case And then he also complained about admittance of the box 
and blood stain and DNA because the state could not provide a chain of custody for the box. And the box apparently didn't appear in any pictures. Um, unfortunately, there were like, I think 11 rolls of film taken, but only one developed. The other 10 were ruined during the development process, which is another example of primitive right. technology. Because now we have the digital cameras. And now you take a picture and you can look at it and tell whether it's good or not. So if it needs to be retaken, you can retake it. Right. Uh, but in those days, you snapped on your film and you sent it to the to the developer and sometimes you did something wrong and nothing came out or they did something wrong and nothing came out. Um, I had pictures that I took when I went to England and Holland. And I think none of the pictures that I took when I was in Holland came out because when they were at the developer, they made a mistake. And so they, I just had no pictures from my trip to Holland. Um, but, uh, anyway, so the court found that on that aspect, there was testimony from Leanne Raspberry, who had been the manager, one of the managers of the store who testified that the box was kept under the cash register, it held register tapes and testimony from one of the detectives who observed the box and the blood stain on the box in the restaurant on the night of September 23rd, 1983. And so the, the appellate court found that those that testimony was sufficient to uh, justify admission of the, the box as evidence and the blood stain and the DNA as evidence. Um, they also pointed out, as I think I've pointed out to people, chain of custody goes to the weight of evidence, not its admissibility. So you, you can't keep evidence out just because the state can't meticulously document a chain of custody for it. Just as the state can't keep a defendant from admitting evidence, even if the defendant cannot meticulously document a chain of custody. Um, and then the capital murder case, he uh, basically challenged the sufficiency of the evidence against him on legal and factual bases. And the appellate court found that um, there, his challenges had no merit. He was identified by the witness uh, star who went by the name Spagano at the time. And um, her identification was actually corroborated by his blood being in the restaurant. Right. And the blood of Pinkerton in the restaurant. And um he had been linked to the van, a white van, because he testified at the grand jury that he, his roommate owned a white van. And witnesses had seen a white van at the restaurant and another witness uh, who lived near the oil lease road said she had seen a, a van. I think she said the van was dark, um, but the jury can, you know, believe or disbelieve that and still find that it was a white van and um shortly thereafter after observing the van she heard gunshots 
and she heard several gunshots in a row and then there was a pause and then she heard additional gunshot so all of those things corroborate his participation in capital murder and um pinkerton's blood in the restaurant also corroborates his participation because he and pinkerton were running buddies so that was his appeal his direct appeal was denied he has filed multiple state post-conviction claims i don't know what those are because they've been dismissed without uh orders from the court of criminal appeals and um the Russ County records are not available online. Uh, he also has requested DNA testing. And that has been denied as well because his DNA testing is that's been done is conclusive. It's not inconclusive. It's not questionable. New methods aren't going to shed any right. more light. Yeah, exactly. He's already been shown that it's his DNA and um, he recently, in 2013, filed a writ of mandamus trying to get the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal to order the courts in Russ County to grant his DNA testing request. That request was denied. Um, now, Pinkerton has become eligible for parole. The only thing I can find is he has gone through the process once in 2019, and that was actually denied. He is still in TDCJ, and he is at the Allred unit. Hartsfield doesn't become eligible until 2023, and he is in the Michael unit. Where those are, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, but you and I were talking, and I thought Pinkerton had been released on parole, but he wasn't. Right. Yeah, he is still. Yeah, I think his initial one was denied. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, he and he and Hartsfield, again, have both appeared on different various news programs and they've they've each claimed innocence. Uh, they each claim that their DNA was planted. Uh, but. That is very far fetched because that means in 1983, Someone had a blood sample from Pinkerton and a blood sample from Hartsfield and planted that in the restaurant before even knowing the victims were killed. Exactly. And what? then Wait. waited 17 years. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, why would, you know, why would you wait 17 years to pull off this mass conspiracy mm -hmm. to frame these two guys you know why not do it and it, especially when they you know they were on you know they were initially questioned they were on the initial suspect list they had been identified as being in the restaurant and so why why wait 17 years well, to pull off this mass conspiracy I, I don't think that they were identified I don't think star identified Hartsfield until years later well right fair yeah but they were they were on the list at least yeah they matched the they matched yeah. matched the description and even even when they were initially being looked at nobody tested the blood because there wasn't a lot blood could have told them in 1983 
Exactly. And it sounds like what they had was so small that they didn't want to they didn't want to use it up to get nothing you know nothing helpful right so they left it um and that's you know perfectly understandable that they would not and that that benefited Hartsfield and Pinkerton because it allowed them to get away with it for 20 years exactly um so but yeah they they each claim they're innocent and they want dna testing they claim it was planted um pinkerton's pointing fingers at mankins and saying mankins did it uh again neither of them have named this unknown third party um so it's solved but there's still some unanswered questions still some open questions yeah well, and i think that would be i mean i know, I know they that the parole boards probably, you know, don't necessarily take all of that into consideration. But I think if, if they were to name that third person, it might at least help help their case to get paroled. At least the, the parole board would say they're genuinely, you know, genuinely regretful for what they did and they're doing what they can do to, you know, to try to, you know, provide justice for the families by naming that third person. But yes, as to date, like you said, they're both being oddly silent about who this third potential person is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that is, that's pretty much the case. I mean, there isn't, there isn't a whole lot of material. I found some great articles. Uh, I found some videos on YouTube. I found one on Facebook that I sent you a link for. Um, but it was, in, it was entirely speculative. Based on probably news articles but uh, it was still interesting to see and uh, the Tyler paper actually did a lot of in-depth coverage and there was a 30 years later uh, video on YouTube that was very interesting yeah that's right they the the Tyler newspaper did a lot to sort of keep the keep the drumbeat going I'm trying to you know make sure that you know, law enforcement prosecutors, you know, kept the kept the case top of mind, even after so many years after it had gone cold, really yeah. sort of to try to keep pressure on them to do to keep looking into it. And so, um, yeah, we we didn't really talk about I couldn't find a lot of information uh, about the victims because of the the pre-internet days, um, so many years before the Internet that this crime occurred. And uh, but, you know, Joey Johnson was from a large family. And um, he had several brothers and sisters. Um, some of whom have now passed on. Uh, Donald Max, uh, David Maxwell, of course, had just gotten married. His wife was expecting their first child. Apparently, his father was never quite the same. This impacted him greatly. And uh, his brother also, uh, it impacted him greatly. And he passed on a few years after, after David. Right. Um, Mary Tyler was married. And she had three children of her own and two stepdaughters who she considered her own, Lisa and Denise. Uh, of course, her daughter, Kim, and she had a son. I believe his name was Tony and another son 
Bubba. I may could be wrong about that name. Uh, one of her children, uh, one of her sons, I believe, was um, had some physical disabilities. And so a lot of her life had been spent caring for him. Um, Opie had a Opie was married and had a son named Merle. Um, and then Monty and and of course Joey had families and they were in college and they had their lives ahead of them. And you know, they would have been guys in their 50s now. Right. So, and that's the thing too. I mean, I know we so much of you know, so much of the discussions publicly about these crimes, you know doesn't really fully consider the impact that it has on the victim's families and their children and spouses and, you know, just such a devastating impact. But yeah, mm -hmm. I know, I, I know from, you know, obviously a little bit closer to this case than some others that, yeah, it's definitely been, it's, it's been felt across, you know, these families in the community much well beyond just the five lives that were taken. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, like I noticed on cold case files, Leanne, who was a manager and friend and Lisa and Denise each cried a lot during their interviews for that episode. All these years later. Yes. It still evoked so much emotion from them. And uh, I know uh, David Maxwell's wife, Lana, um, she had remarried and she's, struggled because i don't think she's ever going to find a man like david right who he just adored her so much and no one's ever going to measure up to that absolutely um so but yeah i mean they they all had their lives ahead of them and they were just cruelly taken away yeah, they all I they all seem like such good people. Um, you know, I know particularly just the, you know, I think with OPUs in particular, when it, you know, when it came about, you know, when the the rape allegations were released in court, I mean, I think it was particularly shocking because it just it sounded like with seeing interviews about her and her husband and her family, you know, she, you know, I'm not sure she ever looked at another man in her entire life besides mm -hmm. her husband, you know, she was just such a such a devoted, you know, wife and a, a you know, a church going lady. And it was just, just terrible, terribly tragic. It's just really hard to imagine. Right. Yeah. To get all of them now, every, all seem like such good people and they're just tragic for such a senseless crime, right? You could have, you could have robbed and, you know, taken a couple thousand bucks and, and been away. It was just a, a really senseless crime. Right. And then that they were taken and they were probably told, we're bringing you out here. We're going to leave Absolutely. you out here. Yes. It's 14 miles from Kilgore, um, you know, 14 miles south. And we're going to leave you here and, you know, we're going to get away. And then they were down defenseless and they were shot. Yeah. Execution style. Uh, yep. Yeah. So, um, well, what about Kilgore today? what's changed what stayed the same and yeah that's a great question i'm not sure you know um 
you know, it's funny, my, uh, we get over there quite a bit. Uh, my grandmother, my my grandmother grew up there and still have her house there. But I would say, you know, in many ways, it has not changed much. Um, you know, obviously the, the KFC moved, um, the building is still there, but um, the restaurant has moved, but not a lot has changed. Um, it is probably about the same size um, from a population perspective. Not a lot has changed in Kilgore. And I would say, you know, this, this case, you know, really rocked and haunted the town you know, for 20 years. I mean, it made a real, real significant impact on the community. It was just such a shocking, shocking and violent execution that it really, um, really had a big impact on the, on the psyche of the community. But, mm -hmm. but that being said, um, you know, honestly, it's funny, not a lot has changed um, in the, you know, what, almost 40 years um, since this crime happened. It's, it's largely, very, very similar to what it would have looked like um, in 1983. Yeah. That's uh, a lot like Kim on in New Orleans. The murders. Yeah. A Vietnamese restaurant in New Orleans East. Right. Um, the, the good thing in that case was it could be solved quickly because two of the potential victims were able to get away and and very bravely identified the perpetrators. Right. So um, yeah, and I just think yes, yeah, I mean it's that's that kind of stereotypical, you know, small town America, and you're just you know people weren't used to having you know murders were rare. I mean, I mm -hmm. couldn't you off the top of my head, but you know, there's certainly you know you certainly didn't see five people killed you know, execution style, you know, right before then or since then. And so, yeah, it was just not something that the community was used to. And then again, not being solved for so long. And then the crazy, you know, twists and turns that it took, you know, accusing, you know, you know, uh, Jimmy Mankins Jr., who again, his father was a, a well-regarded member of the community, a state representative, you know, it just took, there was so much I guess, conspiracy theories around it for so long about being this real crazy drug deal. And mm -hmm. then, you know, you find out at the end of the day, it was nothing more than just sort of a, a petty, you know, robbery, you know, carried out by, you know, two, you know, really evil men that chose to, to execute five people rather than just, you know, right. money and go, you know, it was, it was even more senseless, you know, I think in some ways, that almost made it harder to wrap your head around because you thought, okay, if this is some, if this is some vast drug conspiracy, it doesn't make it right, but at least you can sort of wrap your head around the why, but it just, mm -hmm. in the face of it, it seems so senseless. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it kind of shows how the rumor mill can take a life of its own. Right. And give a case a life of its own and not be even remotely, close to the truth um and of course we see now conspiracy theories uh hartsfield and pinkerton claiming that uh, mankin was the killer and we have our own friend david fisher who says missy wolf and lisa tanner cooked up the dna to frame <laughs> hartsfield right and yeah pinkerton even though Missy Wolf and Lisa Tanner 
didn't have anything to do with the DNA testing. Right. Um, now, Lisa Tanner was brought in early, I think in 95. But uh, the 2000 DNA testing was done by the Russ County Sheriff. And it was George Keeney who probably oversaw and determined what to test and what not to test. Now, that's not to say that the AG's office didn't do additional testing later on, but uh, Lisa Tanner and Missy Wolf were not fabricating blood right. from Hartsfield and, and Pinkerton in order to frame them, which is the allegation being made by David Fisher. Um, that's insane. I mean, again, it's you have to really suspend disbelief and all kinds of just common sense to think that, you know, there's this vast conspiracy to wait 20 years to frame two people for a crime. It just it's actually laughable. I'm actually amazed. You can well, see. but you know what? Um, I I would not saying this, I would not be surprised at some point in time to see innocence project come in and argue the blood could have been in there because they went in that night and Pinkerton had a nosebleed and Hartsfield cut his finger while he was at the counter and the blood dripped onto the box. And then to try and get DNA testing of other things, to try and find somebody to point yeah. a finger at. Yeah, exactly. Um, of course, the problem with that, too, is that they're going to have a hard time finding reference samples. And if you can't get reference samples, then DNA testing means zero. Right. Well, so, but, the fact, I mean, it's even the, you know, it goes back to, I mean, it's kind of like we talked about in the Rodney Reed case, you know, the the gentleman denied having ever been in the restaurant, which I guess I can see if I'm a criminal, you know, I don't want to sort of put myself there. But again, a lot of these folks, if they, you know, they start out being dishonest by saying they never went into the restaurant when, you know, clearly they were there. And, you know, we laugh, we talked about that the, the investigation was fumbled. I mean, let's be honest, it was not done well. It was a, a poorly executed investigation, you know, for myriad reasons reasons and then now all of a sudden we want to find we want to they want us to believe that the same folks who couldn't who bungled the investigation can now pull off this massive conspiracy theory that requires much more complexity and, and no one's gonna no one's gonna ever you know spill the beans on that they're they're right they do a basic murder investigation but they can um you know do pull off this great conspiracy it just doesn't make any sense right and there's no squabbling among jurisdictions. Right, exactly. They can all work together and coordinate perfectly to mm -hmm. pull this conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah, that's not, that's kind of far-fetched. You're totally right. <laughs> so, But I wouldn't put it past the Innocence Project to, to try to argue that. No, that's right, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the reason it hasn't gone farther for Hartsfield, at least, is because he doesn't, he does not have attorney backing. Right. So he's been filing these things pro se. And, um, but I, I'm surprised David Fisher hasn't already stuck his nose in. And maybe once Rodney Reed is executed, 
that'll be David Fisher's next project. Yeah, he'll move on to another one. Yeah. Um, and he'll find, you know, he'll find that the uh, the medical examiner in Dallas uh, in 1983 was, um, you know, not a medical doctor or something, <laughs> you know, something outrageous like that. Yeah, he, he once turned left. Uh, he once turned left on red. Um, and so that disqualifies him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, but we'll have to see. Um, and maybe, may, you know, maybe if uh, one of his little read minions is listening, uh, maybe they'll report this to him and he can try to provide some evidence that uh, anybody framed Hartsfield and or Pinkerton. Yeah, we will. Uh, I will not hold my. Well, he may make the claim, but yeah, doubtful he'll ever be able to actually provide any evidence. No, he really won't. So, because it's all speculation and what he thinks, um, or it's based on somebody shining him on by giving him false statements that he believes to be true. Right. So, like the woman who says she saw. Rocky Wardlow, Jimmy Finnell, Curtis Davis, Ed Salmella, David Hall, all standing around Jimmy Finnell's truck in the parking lot of the high school on April 22nd, 1996. So why do we always, I always end up back at the Rodney Reed case when Fisher comes up. <laughs> it's like, I never can't get away from that one. So, all right. Well, I think, uh, I think we pretty much, you have anything you want to add that we didn't cover or didn't talk about? No, I think you, I think you did a great job as always. And I appreciate it. Like I said, I, you know, this case doesn't get maybe I, it certainly has had a, it's cast a long shadow in East Texas and it doesn't get, you know, probably doesn't get the same amount of traction among the true, the true crime community as some of the, um, you know, the, the 100 or so cases that, you know, everybody does and just keeps redoing. So it's, yeah. it's great to talk about it because it certainly was, um, for me personally, a big, uh, you know, cast a long shadow in my life. And I know in the community as well. I mean, and especially again, as we, we talked about to thinking about, you know, the five, you know, the five young lives just sort of needlessly executed. And I, I mean, needlessly extinguished, you know, for a senseless execution. And I know it's, it's had a very, very big impact, you know, on lots of people, lots of families, you know, children, um, mm -hmm. you know, spouses, et cetera. So glad to be able to, you know, at least honor their memory um, by yeah. talking about this case. And I think the the case doesn't have that draw because even though Hartsfield and Pinkerton claim that they're innocent, nobody believes that claim. Right. Yeah. They haven't, no one's come to start sort of all of a sudden spinning that they're innocent. Mm -hmm. Correct. So, all right. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up a little early tonight, this evening, this afternoon. Um, thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and guest co-host Kyle. If you like the show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien Ann. Join us next week for State of Arkansas versus Damian Eccles. Kyle and I will talk about the propaganda campaign raged by advocates for Eccles surrounding efforts to perform additional DNA testing using MVAC technology, which started with Bob Ruff in 2017. 
I'll finally get to expose the propaganda, which has since been proven to be just that by the fact that Eccles attorneys were able to examine the evidence at the West Memphis Police Department and determine that all of it was present and accounted for in spite of months of implying that it had been illegally lost or destroyed by the state. We'll also talk about the flaws in the recent formal request for DNA testing made by Eccles early this year. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night. Thank you.